an author of multiple books with decades of experience in the field of technology. Today's guest talks about where India lacks in technology, the need of top technocrats in senior decision-making roles, and the reforms required in the research and development sector. He talks about the ways to prevent brain drain as well as Western digital colonization. He talks about the need of Sanskritizing the English language, his battle for Sanskrit, his latest book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, Five Battlegrounds, as well as much more. Catch me in conversation, Mr. Raji Malhotra, as he talks about his journey, his experiences, his lectures, and expresses his views for Ayman's digital magazine, One World. Very glad to be here. I'm always glad to be with young people. Uh, good evening, everyone. We have with us today someone who does not require an introduction, but let me formally introduce him. He is an author of multiple books, the founder of Infinity Foundation, and a visiting professor to one of India's most revered university, the Jawaharlal Nehru University. And we are glad to host Mr. Rajiv Malhotra for a magazine today. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. One thing I should point out, uh, I'm no longer a visiting professor at JNU. That was, uh, that was a two-year term. It was largely symbolic. There, there was nothing of nothing that really happened. People made a big deal out of it. Uh, as a visiting professor, I can come and give a talk. But uh, I used to give talks anyway, and I'm still going to give talks. So nothing has really changed. It was more of a, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not even sure what was the purpose. But anyway, the two year expired and uh, neither side has shown interest in renewing it. I, I haven't approached them. They haven't approached me. So that's a closed chapter. Even though so that's a closed chapter, I'm sure the lectures that you delivered that some of them students might have benefited a lot of them. So yeah, I gave a, I gave I've given about 15 lectures over the last two decades. Most of them before I became visiting professor, some of them after I stopped being a visiting professor. As a visiting professor, I gave one or two. So it really, the visiting professor had very little impact, very little significance. Yeah, yeah. it did uh, make media headlines though. Okay, uh, so let's start with the interview. And my first question, since you were there for in, at a top institution for two years and you've studied through various fields in various top institutions across India and in the world. Uh, so could you tell us something about your journey through science, then uh, moving to the US and finally moving to index studies so you know the headline of my life is in terms of institutions would not have uh, jnu uh, in the top 50 points uh, i was a, i was a physicist at st stephen's college physics undergraduate and after at the age of 20 i got into a phd program uh, with with a very pro prominent uh, theoretical physicist in quantum mechanics uh, in the united states and then uh, in the middle of my uh, phd in physics i switched to computer science and I became a, a specialist uh, at that time. What was artificial intelligence was very embryonic. That was my topic. Of course, it was not anything like today. So it's gone way forward. Uh, that was how I started. And then my journey was uh, in, in the corporate world. Uh, I, I was very senior executive at a very young age at a time when there weren't many Indians in high office in the US. That happened after the year 2000. I'm talking about the 1980s and 1990s. I became a corporate executive, corporate, a corporate, corporate officer, vice president in one of the Fortune 20 companies in IT. Uh, and then I left that and became a management consultant to the chairman of AT&T, the chairman's office of uh, British Telecom, 
uh, France Telecom and various other big international carry, uh, telecom people uh, who were creating this whole internet and email and Gmail. And uh, uh, before there was Gmail and before there was email, there was ARPANET and, and uh, ARPANET uh, had its own uh, uh, services. So I, I come from the tech background of that age. Uh, before the internet was called internet, it was called uh, ARPANET. And uh, a whole lot of uh, uh, emails were being created, just born, being born at that time. And what later became eBay as a separate uh, entity, uh, the telecom companies like AT&T were conceptualizing how to, do, how to market between buyers and sellers, how to bring buyers and sellers together for stock market, for shopping, for all kinds of airline reservation. So I was a strategic consultant at that time. Uh, and and uh, that was my my role as a as a consultant. And then I started my own companies to take these ideas and implement them in the early stages. Uh, I had twenty companies in various countries, uh, various countries including like Eastern Europe, Western Europe. This is uh, right before the Soviet collapsed, and then then I was there when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, and and these markets opened up, uh, Korea, China, all these places. I had different kind of projects going, uh, and then I had a spiritual awakening. Uh, in, uh, when I was uh, in my early 40s uh, and I decided to give up all this. I had been in the United States uh, chasing money, chasing success, chasing career. Uh, that was 23 years of my uh, stay in the United States. And then for, uh, uh, that began, uh, uh, that spiritual uh, awakening began a new life. Uh, for the last 27 years, I've been in this new life, which is entirely for, uh, you know, nonprofit, uh, giving back to society, serving my dharma. So I created the Infinity Foundation. So in a nutshell, my stay in the US of 50 years has been 23 years in the for-profit sector and 27 years in the non-profit sector. So in the non-profit sector, we've given a lot of grants to big Ivy Leagues, learned how they do things, what's right, what's wrong, how to engage them, how to understand them, how to debate with them, how to fight with them, uh, and also created a whole lot of conferences of our own uh, and, and written a lot of books. Uh, and then in India, done the same sort of things, created a mirror in India to, uh, because Indians were sleeping, Indians were not aware of what's going on in the global discourse about India. And Indian leaders in RSS and BJP and BHP were not interested at that time. I'm talking about 1990s. And, and after a whole lot of uh, flare-ups and controversies, then they started taking all this matter very seriously. So I, I've had a 50-year vision a 50-year experience through all of this. JNU is a trivial, minor, inconsequential nature. Uh, it made a big sensation because people like to take something out of context and flare it up. And because JNU is a very uh, big uh, kind of a sensational uh, thing, uh, so those who oppose me and, and uh, who oppose the so-called Hindu right, uh, they started attacking me. But actually, it has no consequence. I had no students, no class. I never taught a course. Uh, I had no research students either. I, I was basically given a letter, I said, fine. And I went and gave one talk. Uh, so that, but I've given dozens of talks in Delhi University. I've given talks in IITs, IIT Madras given a lot of talks in Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore, uh, uh, IIT Bombay. I've given hundred times more talks than in, JN, in other places than in JNU. So it's hardly a, a kind of a way to introduce me that, you know, this guy is some JNU professor just to let you know, because I think it's important that we should correct people's impression. Yes, sir, surely, uh, probably mentioning 
the other top universities works better but anyways uh, this is a common trend in india that you you moved to the us and you also you have lived through this trend wherein students from india either after completing their degree or to complete their degree move out to the west and they get stuck there or they probably settle down there so that uh, if we talk about dada bhai naroji in his terms he termed it as brain drain but what are your views on that current situation today so you know the thing is that in my book on artificial intelligence which i just came out with uh, i am i am pointing out that outsourcing indian labor to the western market is not a sign of uh, we are great in software because we cannot even write software for fighter jets we have to buy rafael which is ai based software and so our people our software engineers are working for foreign companies uh, even in india they're working for google and microsoft and apple doing all that work but we don't own the intellectual property uh, so the the people the indians who own the intellectual property 99% of them are sitting in silicon valley type places and they're they're making a lot of money for themselves sitting over there uh, so either the indians are uh, what i call tech coolies doing dirty work low level grunt work for uh, people that have they have been outsourced and uh, the people who make a lot of money as middlemen uh, they they rent a person for 10000 a year for his brain and they market him for 30 40 50000 $50, and they make a lot of money and we call them heroes you know this infosys and tcs and mahindra they, that's what they've been doing making a lot of money not i'm not criticizing them i'm just pointing out that this is how they're making the money they did not develop products they did not invest in uh, futuristic technologies and get intellectual property they just didn't do that uh, so the the, the large number of indians are involved in that uh, then there are those who are the cream who gone and become their own billionaires in silicon valley those are doing their own living their good life and uh, making money for themselves it is not india's money it is their personal money we are very proud that uh, people of our origin have done that we are very proud of sundar pichai and satya nadel and all kind of other people but don't think that they are doing it for india they are doing it for themselves and for their employer which is an american company and then there are those who are left in india who, who are doing this work from india but the, the cream are again working for uh, western companies they are not working for indian companies so that's the state of uh, affairs uh, f- uh, you know in the in the whole this digital tech uh, software kind of economy uh, as far as uh, from looking at it from the personal career of an individual people have to do what they want to do i mean they they don't have opportunities the indian enterprises have not given enough opportunities for good tech people things are changing we are having now venture capital and venture capital is investing in uh, you know india based uh, uh, there are a lot of india based uh, good ventures going on good startups so things are changing but on a small scale compared to the rest of the world that's kind of a landscape of what's happening uh, you know as far as a uh, brain drain is concerned china if you compare with china they sent their bright people also to united states but they those guys come back uh, most of the guys, chinese who come to the united states two differences firstly they don't they don't come for liberal arts and humanities and uh, you know social sciences and they're not uh, studying uh, china through the american lens and they're not doing breaking china uh, like we have hindu phobia they're not doing uh, confucius phobia they're not doing that kind of nonsense they're doing tech work and the second difference is that they go back to china the indians come for whatever they feel like coming wherever whatever their interests are and then they mostly stay here the the bright ones they stay here so those are some of the differences between uh, china and india 
Yeah, so probably uh, one of the reasons behind Indians staying back and not coming back, as you talked about the cream, and they're, they're having uh, lack in quality research facilities in India, especially. Even though if we see the top research institutions, there uh, aren't many to name about. So since you have led an organization which you uh, founded in your 40s, as you rightly said, uh, the Infosys Foundation, which has worked in this area, what do you think India should do to boost its research fa facilities, which will in turn lead, uh, lead to some growth in the Indian technology sector. So let me tell you, long before I started Infinity Foundation and decided to leave the tech world and get into serving my dharma, long before that, I was head of R&D in Fortune 20 company. So I had laboratories working for me. At one time in the, in the computer mainframe industry, even before that, I had five R&D labs. There was one in, in, in Scotland, there was one in Belgium, one in Brazil, a couple of them in the United States reporting to me, a few thousand technical people. So I have that experience of what R&D is like. How do you motivate these people? What budgets are like? How you come up with futuristic projects and how, do you, how you make IP? So I know that. Uh, and, and that was at a very young age, I did all that. So when I look at India, when I look at the situation in India, I feel that uh, there is the, there's too much government, Niti Aayog, people meddling, uh, and, and uh, the, the IITs and, I, and various science kind of science tech organizations do have brains, but on a very small scale, they're doing it. Uh, some professor may have five guys uh, working on some project, another guy somewhere, four or five people. We don't have scale. We don't have scale. The scale examples of leading technology work is Baba Atomic Research uh, uh, and also Indian Institute of, uh, and also uh, ISRO for space. Uh, we don't have, those are old. You know, Baba Atomic Research was started by Homi Baba uh, back in the 50s and all that became big in the 60s. And ISRO also was started then a few decades later and Satish Dhawan uh, became the big, big person. But those are decades old you know, technologies, and they're very important today because they've kept up. However, today's new technologies, today's new technology is semiconductor at the cutting edge, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, this whole, uh, whole uh, uh, drones, this whole robotics, uh, this new materials, uh, on and on, solar, uh, you know, the, the, when you look at the new technologies, India is not at the top. Uh, you have US and Chinese companies at the top. India is coming up slowly, uh, or maybe not even slowly, but rapidly, let's say. But it's to catch up with China. Uh, China should be the benchmark. To catch up with the China is not going to be is going to be very difficult. You know, if you're if you're if your speed used to be 20 miles per hour, and now it is 50 miles per hour, it's pretty good. But your competitor is running at 70 miles per hour. So how are you, how are you going to catch up? Just because you're better than before doesn't mean anything. You're still lagging behind your competitor, and he's still getting more lead. And that competitor is China. So I would say that uh, Indian funding in R&D is too low. As a percentage of GDP is too low, as an absolute amount of crores of rupees is too low. Furthermore, it's fragmented. Industry does very little R&D. They like to license. DRDO for the government does some R&D, but it is not at the cutting edge. Academic people do R&D, some of it at the cutting edge, but not on a big scale. In the United States, we have a military, industrial, academic unified ecosystem. Military funds a lot of work that goes, that helps industry, that helps academics. And industry also funds a lot of academic work. And these academic people 
develop these technologies and then their students get jobs in government technology and private sector technology. So there's a triangle, military, industrial, academic complex. India doesn't have that because in India it's separate. Uh, whatever de uh, defense does separate, whatever little bit of research that uh, uh, somebody is doing in the private sector is separate and whatever the, the academic people are doing is separate. It's not been put together. Uh, and the Ditya Yoga is not qualified. They don't have the right kind of people who understand these futurist technologies. They're just rubber stamping, copying, pasting what McKinsey wrote or what some Pricewaterhouse people wrote or what they heard here and there. Uh, and they write very slick PowerPoint presentations, but they really don't, they don't have the firsthand experience as tech people who've been technocrats themselves and who've managed technical labs and who've done visions and who, who vision and who've done consulting reports and who've uh, produced entrepreneurial projects, they don't have those kind of people. So what they need to do is to need to bring in uh, successful technocrats from around the world, from around the world, not be limited to those who are IAS people or those who are Babus or Netas from some, uh, you know, some particular group. They need to bring talented people, pay them international salaries, people who are at the cutting edge of technology and put them in Niti Aayog and give them the charter, give, make them in charge and let these, uh, let the Babu types uh, put, get on the side. That's what needs to happen. Truly, sir, that would probably technocracy would change the uh, conditions in India. Talking about tech, uh, it is said that the data is the new oil. And in your latest book on AI, uh, you have spoken about how there is lack of Indian presence among the so-called tech giants in today's world. So. In these days, when they are accumulating data, how do you think uh, India can prevent uh, what you st stated in your book, the return of the British East India Company? So uh, I called it the return of the East India Company. We are recolonizing. AI is going to be the new industrial revolution. It is the new industrial revolution. And people should know that it is the industrial revolution in England, which allowed the East India Company to create a world empire. Without the industrial revolution, they did not have the power. We should know that. Uh, then France came along and England and France were war, had war with each other, competing, uh, competing against each other and competing for colonies around the world. So today's equivalent of that is US versus China. They are like the Britain versus France of the er earlier time. And the new industrial revolution is artificial intelligence and all the other technologies around artificial intelligence. So besides the US and China at uh, clash with each other, they're also competing for international uh, colonies. China has got Pakistan, they'll soon have Afghanistan, uh, then, and they have Africa, a lot of Latin American places where they've uh, created uh, their own bases, their own, uh, you know, uh, the, the colonies in a sense, uh, or, or what are practically speaking colonies, they don't call it that. And US has its sphere of influence. So these are two world systems, uh, global systems competing. There is no India Vishwa Guru at all. I mean, do not have those ideas that we are Vishwa Guru, because at one time we were. But because one time we were, the great rishis were there and we had great uh, uh, you know, uh, empires, great knowledge producing, but that doesn't mean we're like that today. Uh, you cannot be Vishwa Guru today based on past glory. You have to produce today's uh, you know, uh, leaders and, and, and heroes, uh, intellectual heroes, uh, tech heroes, and give them the opportunity to do it on a big scale. And, and this is not happening. So I, I would say that uh, the, the prognosis, uh, to change the prognosis from this uh, negative to positive, the government needs to do serious rethinking. And to do serious rethinking, they need to bring in serious people from the outside. The government does not have uh, from its own cadre, 
whether it is uh, BJP cadre or RSS cadre or whether it is Babu cadre, India does not have that right? because these people do not have the international experience of being successful on in foreign countries at the cutting edge. They don't have that. So unless India is opening opening its posture towards you know bringing in senior people, uh, senior people in advisory capacities, in decision making capacities, in policy making advisory roles, unless India is willing to bring such people from around the world wherever they are, India cannot move forward. Yes, sir. Uh, there is a lack of people, uh, such senior people. Uh, I do agree to that. Uh, Sir, in another book of yours, which is like one of your most famous books, The Battle of Sanskrit. Uh, moreover, I heard that the Marathi version was released in Pune recently. Like it was made available for Pune recently. And uh, so could you tell us about the idea behind that book, The Battle of Sanskrit? Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing is, uh, uh, Sanskrit studies in, the, in Europe uh, was very big and they used it to get a lot of knowledge, a lot of scientific knowledge, a lot of mathematics, a lot of medicine. Uh, they got out of uh, Sanskrit, sort of uh, certainly linguistics and grammar, they got out of the study of Sanskrit. Uh, and then they, they, they digested all those things into the Western framework and they started calling it their own uh, without acknowledging that these things come from Sanskrit. And then uh, United States also came into it later, later, United States came later. So now what has happened is the most prestigious places to get a doctoral degree in Sanskrit are, you know, whether it's Oxford or Harvard or Columbia or Chicago, it's not Indian places. You ask any senior Indian uh, person in Sanskrit, uh, privately ask him, where would you rather get a PhD? He will name foreign countries. He will not say Banaras Hindu University or Delhi University, he will name foreign countries. Where would you rather go and present your paper? International conference. Where would you rather publish it? International journal. Which award would you rather have? Well, some big award from Harvard or something. So the, the idea being that uh, India does not even control its own uh, major language, which is such a rich, uh, rich tradition. Uh, the, the Battle for Sanskrit is a book that uh, was started because certain people, certain Indian financial people, very rich with deep pockets in the New York area, were funding a program in Columbia University where a Sheldon Pollock, uh, who's, who's, who I'm criti criticizing, he's one of these great scholars of Sanskrit. From the Western tradition point of view, he's a great scholar because he's given a spin from a Marxist point of view. He's interpreting Sanskrit uh, and all the texts and Shastras from a very leftist, feminist, uh, Freudian, postmodern point of view. He's doing all that and deconstructing Sanskrit. So he was going to be given the money from uh, uh, all of these wealthy Indians and the Shankaracharya uh, you know, people in Shingeri were putting, uh, wrote an MOU uh, giving him the Adhikar to represent uh, Adi Shankara. So he was going to create the Adi Shankara chairs all across USA. And therefore it would become like Peetams, like um, Mattas, like we have Mattas in India. This would be the Adi Shankara Mattas in the Western world. What a silly thing to do. What a silly thing to do. So I fought this. I got a lot of uh, anger at me from uh, both the Western Academy, but this is not the first fight I've had with them. I've had many, many fights. So, you know, I'm kind of used to it. And a lot of Indian NRIs who are in, in, in India, they do salam to them that this is a rich guy in America. But this is what these guys were doing in America. They were funding such people. They were funding them so that they could become important. Their kids would go to Ivy League. And they would get on the board of some prestigious Ivy League. And they would be, maybe they would be good for their political career in the US. Uh, maybe it would be good for their industry, uh, you know, uh, you know deal-making in the US. So for all these selfish reasons, the rich people in uh, niche NRIs were backing all this. 
I was the guy who support, opposed it, opposed it, and there was nobody to support, support me. No help from any of these uh, Hindu organizations who later want to claim that they got the they were helping and all that. When the job is done, they will take credit. Indians will sit back, let other people do the work. When he's successful, if he's successful, they want to jump in and take the credit. If when he's facing the battle. When there he's facing the bullets, they're not going to come and help him because they don't want to get involved. This is very typical I faced for for 30 years now. So this is what happened, and I wrote this book, uh, the Battle for Sanskrit, because I convinced uh, uh, Shankaracharya of uh, Shingeri that before he uh, implements this MOU, because they were going to make the announcement in 30 days. 30 days were left to make the announcement of all these chairs that were going to be created, and and uh, Shingeri was supporting it and the whole legacy of Adi Shankara would be outsourced to these people. 30 days were left. So I went and convinced uh, Shankaracharya ji with all respects, please wait for my report to come out. It will be, I told him, 100 page report, 50 to 100 page report. I will give you all the reasons you should not do it. So he, he allowed that, he waited. And then it took more than a few months. It took me many, many more months to write a book. And the book is 500 pages, not 100 page report, but it became a big book. And the book book had a huge impact. So the Shingeri people did not do the deal. They backed out of it. Uh, so uh, the, and in the process, I got more enemies, not only in USA, but also in India, also among some of these Sanskritwalas, because they are all sold out. Many of the Sanskrit people in India are sold out. This is very shameful. But when we have international con conferences in Sanskrit, uh, whether it's in India or Bangkok or wherever they're having these conferences every few years, they don't want a guy like me to come and talk about all this because the, because the Indians are also in the pocket. The, the, the Westerners have gotten into their pocketbook. They're funding them. They're inviting them to the Western countries and you know giving them a good time and making them famous and good for their ego. And so a lot of very prominent uh, Indians in Sanskrit are actually uh, you know so much in awe of the Westerners uh, that uh, they have to stay away from people like me. So this battle for Sanskrit was one of those books, one of my many books, which was actually my battle with the whole establishment. It is a battle for Sanskrit by me against a whole establishment in the West with a whole lot of Indian sepoys in India serving the West. So it's, not, it's a very complicated uh, story. If you read just the introduction and the conclusion and just uh, the first two pages of every chapter summary you will get an amazing account of what is really going on. It would have been a roller coaster ride to get through that. Uh, in another book of yours, which you released last year, uh, you along with Sri Satyanayan Das talk about uh, the need for Sanskritizing the English language. So what do you feel? Why do you think it is needed specifically? So, you know, every language, not just Sanskrit, but every language has words that cannot be translated because there's no equivalent word. I mean, there are words in Mandarin, there are words in Arabic, in Persian, there are words in French. So there are words in different languages which are the experience of that, uh, that culture. So I'm told that in the Eskimo language, there's over a dozen words for ice. Uh, the, when ice is falling, there's a word. When ice is melting, it's a word. When small amount of ice cube is a word. Big ice, uh, iceberg is a different word. So they don't use the word ice for all the different kinds of ice. They, they have different, different words because they live in that, in that area where there's so much experience with the ice and snow and whatnot that they have different words representing different kinds of experience. So if you were to collapse all those words and, and just replace it with the word ice, it will not be fair to them because you are losing all the, all the context 
and all the diversity of experience that those people have had. Similarly, you know, in our culture, Sanskrit represents the experience of the rishis. Sanskrit represents thousands of years of R&D that our people did in various domains, whether it is social domain or Indian or internal philosophical domain, whether it is our view towards political thought, whatever, all the domains, we have so much experience. So we, we should have certain words that are non-translatable. So I call them Sanskrit non-translatable. And the sad thing is people from Vivekananda onwards, he translates Atman as soul. Uh, he, he translates, uh, you know, a whole lot of words into into different kind of meanings. So this is uh, this is uh, sad. Uh, uh, we are translating pran as breath, but pran is a lot more than breath. Breath is a very physical, mechanical thing. A machine can have breathing. You can have an artificial heart-lung machine doing the breathing, but that is not pranayama. You cannot have a robot with the art with artificial lungs and breathing and say the robot will become enlightened because he done pranayama. You see, so. The pran is related to consciousness, and you cannot say that uh, shakti is energy. Energy is not uh, energy is not uh, feminine, and energy is not intelligent, and energy is not conscious. You know, it is just physical matter. So uh, the, the meanings are destroyed when you translate them in a simple way. So therefore, the solution is when we when we are writing in English or speaking in English. We should introduce these Sanskrit words into the English language without translating them. Use them in their original form as part of English. And you will be helping the English language. You will be enriching the English language. It is not that uh, you are insulting the English language by Sanskritizing it. You are actually enriching it. So, so this is why I what I call the Sanskritization of English. The Sanskritization of English should be the project that Indian Sanskrit scholars should champion. They're jealous because they never thought of this. Some of them are on the wrong side. Some of them don't fully understand. And so rather than helping me when I was putting this book together, except for Babaji, uh, you know, Satyanand Das who understood my point very clearly for many years, we've been working together on this. Uh, and except for that and a few other people, most people did not understand what I'm trying to do. They thought it's politically very incorrect and I should not be doing this. I got very hardly any support from the establishment of people in India who are supposedly uh, you know, encouraging and sub, uh, supporting Sanskrit. But once the book came out, I must say, uh, the, 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 the people who are into uh, teaching spoken Sanskrit, we, they've got hundreds of copies in the United States, given them to all their teachers. Uh, people in India have been promoting this book. After it came out, they've been helping me. And now the, the people, who, the places where they teach Sanskrit, the big Sanskrit universities, uh, the various mathas, uh, they all respect this book. They all understand that the book has a very important contribution. So the fashion has changed. Rather than uh, anglicizing Sanskrit, we are Sanskritizing English. Previously, we were anglicizing Sanskrit. We were very proud that you know we can uh, take the Sanskrit and replace it with some fancy English word. Complex. We should be confident. And we should take the knowledge of Sanskrit, put it into the English in the original form, so people will know where it came from. That's the uh, role of this book. Yes, uh, probably a simple example for me and other students would be if you talk about Hindi and uh, we have two words uh, which are translated to water. We have Jal and we have Pani. Whereas if we go into depths, uh, Jal means something which is pure. Uh, up, like, if we compare it to English, it should be pure and pious water. For example, Ganga Jal. Whereas Pani is anything that's water. So probably... Uh, Things like that, as you explained, uh, through different examples, uh, 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 that explains the need uh, of Sanskrit using the English language and probably including other 
languages as well uh, yes yeah so truly through that you uh, as a teacher you have as you said earlier in this interview you have delivered lectures all throughout the world and various institutions across india so since we are doing this close to the indian teachers day what would be your method, uh, message to the youth on this teachers day so my message to the youth is you know teachers are very precious very important you should respect them but it's also in the tradition of our culture that you should challenge the teachers you should hold them responsible uh, you know student uh, question the guru all the time in our tradition uh, you know arjun questioning and uh, debating uh, shri krishna i mean this is all all the time is happening you are not supposed to be blind obedient just sit and listen and you will find that many of the teachers are not uh, up to the mark in the sense of they are not current with the global trends they don't read enough they just have a syllabus they keep repeating so uh, to upgrade the quality of teachers is necessary and students have to push for that students have to push for that in a very respectful manner students should push for uh, you know better salaries for teachers so that we can attract better quality teachers teachers are teachers are not one of the well paid prestigious posts like in the old days you know people patronized the gurus of art the rajas would give anything to a good guru because he was so important uh, and to the future generation the guru the quality of gurus is so important i think we have not given enough uh, value to the teaching profession today in india we need to and uh, of course the curriculums and the textbooks all need to be upgraded we keep talking about it for so many years now uh, not enough has happened so the entire knowledge uh, profession of knowledge education teaching needs a revamp and i've looked at the nep there are some interesting good things about the new uh, education policy but it's not enough uh, especially in the liberal arts and social sciences it's not enough thank you so much sir for that message i'm sure uh, students like me and many others would love to know more about these issues and uh, probably learned a lot from your answers thank you so much sir for being here and we are very glad to host you again thank you for this and i congratulate you for courageous uh, being courageous asking bold questions uh, and i like it when people ask tough questions relevant intelligent tough questions and uh, more power to you Con wish you all the best in your journey and we'll be happy to come back uh, whenever invited thank you namaste so to you namaste